Hey, everybody, this week's episode of Serious Trouble is free for all listeners. Thank you for listening. But we still encourage you to go to SeriousTrouble.show and become a paying subscriber. Because if you do, you'll be helping to make this podcast possible as paying subscribers who make it possible for Ken and Sarah and me to get together every week and make this podcast for you. So we encourage you, if you really like this show, go to SeriousTrouble.show and join up. And thank you. Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Uh, Ken, I want to actually start this week with the January 6th prosecutions, not the big Jack Smith prosecution of Donald Trump for the events that led up to January 6th, but the prosecutions actually relating to the Capitol riot itself, uh, because we've been getting a number of really big sentences in those cases. This sort of started the first sentences, the first pleas that we saw in these cases uh, a couple of years ago now were fairly low-level offenders, people who walked in and paraded around the Capitol. Some of them got very short sentences or even non-custodial sentences. Now we've gone through and we've got sentences for some of the people who were really involved in planning, orchestrating, inciting this riot. And some of these sentences are really quite long, including 22 years for Enrique Tarrio, uh, who had been the leader of the Proud Boys. He wasn't even present on the day of January 6th, but he'd been involved in planning and orchestrating this attack. and, And he's going to prison for quite a long time. He is. We we are seeing this. You're right that before we had been seeing sentences of anywhere from a few months to a few years for a lot of people. The longest sentences we'd been seeing were in the eight to 10 year range for people who actually engaged in, in real violence and assaulted police officers or other people like that. But there have been a lot of commentary about why aren't there longer sentences? Well, we're seeing the answer here. Uh, first of all, these were people who were charged with more serious crimes like seditious conspiracy. And they're people who went to trial. And so they're eating the trial penalty for asserting the rights. And so we're getting these sentences of, like you said, up to 22 years uh, for Enrique Otario, 18 years for Stuart Rhodes, who was the head of the Oath Keepers. And, uh, you know, an indication that uh, Yale Law has issues teaching ethics and gun safety. Um, <laughs> Joseph Biggs, 17 years from the Proud Boys. Again, the, the distinguishing feature for all these people is that they were charged with serious crimes like seditious conspiracy. They had significant planning and organizing roles and directing other people to come and use violence and engage in the invasion. And they all went to trial and you know, denied responsibility. And in many cases, they continued to make statements denying responsibility and claiming that they were in the right even after they were on trial, which is not the way to endear yourself to a judge and get any sort of credit for uh, acceptance. And that makes real material differences in terms of what sentence you'll get. The judge is actually taking into account what the, the convict is saying at the sentencing stage. Well, I, I think it can because we've seen that judges have the discretion to go significantly below what the sentencing guidelines recommend and what the government is asking for. The government was asking for stiffer sentences in all these cases, but the ones where the judge went very substantially below what was recommended tended to be ones where people accepted responsibility and uh, didn't go to trial and didn't go out and run their mouth about how, you know, the election was stolen, we didn't do anything wrong and and stuff like that. But really, a judge's inclination to substantially go below the guidelines 
uh, is dramatically reduced when they think that you are still defiant and you don't believe you did anything wrong. A number of these sentences were below the guidelines, even though they are quite long. And there, there was another one. Dominic Pizzola actually was acquitted uh, of seditious conspiracies, one of the, the Proud Boys who'd been charged with that. But he was convicted of various other uh, serious crimes. Prosecutors had sought a 20-year sentence for him. The judge in his case ended up sentencing him to only 10 years. Um, and part of the explanation the judge gave for that was that so the enhancements that were applying to the sentence that the government was seeking that would have implied this very long sentence that he thought those sentences were intended for acts that caused or sought to cause mass loss of life, that basically these are enhancements that were created for terrorism, um, and that while the the actions on January 6th were very serious criminal conduct, uh, it wasn't an effort to, say, blow up the Capitol building and kill thousands of people, and that his view was that really that was what those sort of enhancements were intended for. And so as I look at that, you know, I see in the coverage that you have judges in these cases, even these very serious cases, making this particular choice to depart downward from what the guidelines would be for sentences. On the other hand, these sentences are quite long. I mean, it's it's sort of remarkable to me to look at someone who gets 20 years or even 10 years in prison and say they were given a light sentence because they didn't even get more than that. Well, yeah, Americans, I think, have this tendency to love these big, splashy numbers uh, and to think, you know, everyone should be getting life plus cancer. But a 10-year sentence is a dramatic, life-altering thing in a way that I don't think a lot of people appreciate. Uh, not only you're removed from society and your family and any job for a long time, but that really dramatically changes the rest of your life. And a 20-year sentence, even more so. And, and just to give people a sense, if you're sentenced to 20 years, how long are you actually likely to spend in custody? Well, the baseline is you're going to do 85%, but there have been some more recent changes to various credits you can get depending on what your background is. So for someone uh, like Enrique Tarrio, who, who had a criminal history, he might not have as many options available to him to shorten his sentence, but they are increasingly offering more opportunities to shorten your time actually served by completing programs and doing things in prison. But should I still sort of assume, you know, at least half of that sentence? Oh, yeah. Uh, very much at least half, probably closer to uh, two-thirds. Okay. So one thing that's quite remarkable to me is how this illustrates the trial penalty in American law, the, the concept that for telling the government you're going to have to prove it and going to a jury, you really spend dramatically longer in prison. So Lawfare and, and uh, Roger Parloff over there have been reporting on information that came out in various pleadings that revealed what plea offers were made to some of these defendants versus what they got post-trial. So uh, Enrique Tario was given an offer that would have meant probably a recommendation of nine to 11 years in that range. And he wound up with 22 for going to trial. Nordine was offered six to eight years and got 18. Biggs was offered six to eight years and got 17. So you see this system where why there's such a gigantic incentive to plead guilty and not put the government to its proof and not challenge the case uh, because the, the penalty for doing that is so dramatic. Now, the government would want to spin it as, no, that's the credit you're getting for accepting responsibility. That's so dramatic. But it, it's still, I think it's hard to say that it's not a gigantic penalty for going to trial. 
what would be the alternative to that system? I mean, why? I, I don't know why anyone would take a plea deal if the sentence that you were likely to get for pleading is similar to the one that you would get if you were convicted at trial. Now, I, I realize if you're if you're paying for your own legal defense, then one reason to do it would be that it would be really expensive to go to trial. But if you're represented by the public defender and it's basically a free roll of the dice, you know, I, I can either plead and get eight years or I can go to trial and get eight years if I'm convicted and then maybe something good happens. It feels like the only way you can possibly get the plea deals is if there is some sort of credit for taking them, right? Well, that's the conventional wisdom and that's sort of the premise of the system. Uh, The question is, how much of a penalty is appropriate? The sentencing guidelines are premised on this concept that a rather modest credit is appropriate. You know, you get three levels off of the calculation, which usually makes a difference of a few years. But here we're talking about sentences that are sometimes three times as long, or at least twice as long, and that's much more dramatic. And that puts you know, an almost unpayable price on the decision to go to trial. So kind of highlights some of the criticisms of the system as it's built. When I asked about the extent to which judges take into account statements that the convict makes at the time of sentencing, a reason that I was skeptical about the idea that that would matter much or that it should matter much is that I would expect the, the convicts to lie about the extent to which they accept responsibility and that they've learned lessons and that sort of thing. I mean, we even saw this with Dominic Pizzola, who got that 10-year sentence not for seditious conspiracy, where he was sobbing in the court and saying that, you know, it had been such a mistake to get involved in politics and he was going to move away from it. And then he gets the sentence, and as he's walking out of the courtroom, he shouts, Trump won, um, which strikes me as an indication that he was less than sincere when he was talking about having, you know, no further desire to engage in politics. And so I don't, you know, I don't know if you're the judge and, you know, some person there is facing years in prison and their objective is to convince you that they're really not so bad and that they've learned a lesson. I don't know why you would believe what they have to say. Well, I don't think that experienced judges are terribly naive about this type of thing. I think in evaluating whether or not someone has accepted responsibility, they look at the course of conduct over time and not just whatever comes out of their mouth at the sentencing hearing. Uh, so I don't know that the judge gave him a huge break that the judge wouldn't have given if, if he knew that this was insincere. But a lot of these people, a lot of the time, it's just not a matter of you know, an, an insincere statement. It's a matter of they really can't control themselves. And this is a, a classic lawyer dilemma. As a defense lawyer, you really want to put extreme limits on what your client says at sentencing and ideally limit it to something in writing because many people put into that situation to talk to the judge, uh, the extreme stress and emotion of the moment will go off script. And every defense lawyer has had a client just say something awful uh, because, you know, they're, they're just feeling aggrieved and feeling poor me and, and that leads them down the wrong road and, and seeing a, a sentence go south that way. So it's harder to dissemble uh, in that moment uh, than you might think. And so uh, on the flip side of that was Enrique Tario, who got 22 years. Uh, and one thing that the prosecutors pointed out at the time that he was being sentenced uh, was that even during jury deliberations, Tario had given an interview online in front of thousands of people in which he said that the Proud Boys had done nothing wrong right. on the day of the January 6th attack. And, and you and I were discussing this some before the show. And I sort of look at this and assume Enrique Tario knows that he's going to be, he knows he's going to be convicted. He knows he's going to get a really long sentence. His objective here is to convince 
convince either Donald Trump or some other future Republican president that he's a political prisoner or that even if he did something wrong, that these sentences are, you know, grossly excessive and that he deserves a pardon or clemency. And so the, the real audience that he's aiming for here isn't the judge. It's some political figure. And so is I'm I'm wondering whether that's a miscalculation on his part. I mean, would he have gotten fewer than 22 years if he hadn't pulled those shenanigans? I'm sure he would have gotten somewhat fewer. I don't know that it would be a huge amount fewer uh, if he had consistently behaved better. Consistently behaved better subsequent to being indicted, I assume you mean? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I think there are a few things going on. I I think there's still the ongoing grift, uh, the attention, the money, the clicks, that type of thing. And that type of rhetoric is necessary to keep that going. You know, people aren't going to swarm and and donate and that sort of thing if you're all of a sudden saying, oh, they got me, they're right. But also, I think you're right that it is a miscalculation to be counting on a pardon from Trump or anyone else. Uh, Trump has been somewhat uh, unreliable in pardoning people. And he was certainly urged to do big blanket pardons of the January 6th people before he left office. He didn't. And I, I think that counting on him to do this when there's nothing particularly in it for him uh, is kind of a long shot. Well, I mean, it's not a matter of counting on him, right? It's a matter of hoping that he yes. will. They, they don't have a lot of great options. They don't. Uh, So maybe he's doing that, but I don't really know that the rhetoric he's using is going to make the difference in whether or not Trump pardons him. So I think that's going to be a matter of whim for Trump. Speaking of Trump, he has filed a, a motion to sever in the Georgia prosecution. Now, we've, we've been following this. There are 19 defendants that District Attorney Fonnie Willis has indicted. She says she wants to try them all at once. She was before Judge Scott McAfee this week, or one of her uh, attorneys was before Scott McAfee this week, saying that they believe that they can try all of them in four months. Um, and because some of those uh, defendants have asserted their legal right in the state of Georgia to be tried on a speedy basis, that they, they, they're saying they're prepared to go forward next month and try all 19 defendants in a four-month period. Uh, Judge McAfee called that a bit unrealistic. As of the time we're taping, he hasn't ruled yet on her motion to do that, but he didn't sound very impressed uh, in, in the hearing when they were talking about this. And so meanwhile, Donald Trump has filed a motion basically to say, you can't make me go to trial next month with all these people. I won't have time to prepare my legal defense. And that's pretty reasonable as Donald Trump's legal motions go, right? It's very reasonable. Uh, I mean, first of all, I, I think the judge is right to be skeptical that the DA is saying that they can try you know, 19 people in four months with 150 witnesses. I, I think that's extremely unrealistic and off by, you know, a factor of three or so. And, th- and they also said the, the case will take the same amount of time regardless of whether they can try all 19 together or if they're trying even just one person, which seems implausible, right? If you have 19 people, there's 19 different defense attorneys who get to cross-examine each witness. Isn't that the case? But I think what they meant was each trial will take four months no matter how many times you split it up. So you might as well just do one. And that suggests that their theory is they're going to put in all the evidence about all the defendants in each case just to sort of push the idea this is one big RICO conspiracy and everything is related to everything else, which again, I think is a questionable decision if you've got something like just say Ken Chesbro and and Sidney Powell going to trial. But yeah, Trump's request for more time is very reasonable. It was very brief. It simply pointed out that his lead attorney had other commitments this month. You know, there's a trial, another trial he's doing. There's no way he can get ready in this gigantic case uh, by the end of October. And it's 
perfectly reasonable and no serious judge would you know think of forcing someone under these circumstances to this kind of trial that quickly if they don't want to go. And he also, Trump's attorneys pointed to a motion that Fonnie Willis had filed, because when you say Ken Chesebro and and Sidney Powell, these are the two defendants of, of the 19 defendants who have requested their speedy trial. And in Georgia, you are entitled to a very quick trial under a very old law. Um, this, you know, this goes back a couple hundred years. That this has been on the books in Georgia. Uh, I was hearing Andrew Fleischman, who we had on our show a few weeks ago, talking about the history of this and how Georgia has been unusual in this strong speedy trial right for a very long time. But so anyway, the two of them requested their their speedy trial. And the district attorney didn't like that because it was going to screw up her her effort to bring all 19 of them to trial at once. So she filed this motion with Judge McAfee, basically saying, well, I would like it if you would clarify, if you would tell the defendants that all these bad things are going to happen if they if they demand a speedy trial, that they won't be able to get certain discovery um, and that, you know, they will be required to make discovery available to us on a timeline that is probably impractical for them to even do and all these sorts of things, all these ways they'll be disadvantaged by a speedy trial. And so Trump turns right around and says, well, these people, for whatever reason, asserted their right to a speedy trial. And here's DA Fonnie Willis saying how unfavorable a speedy trial is. So it's unfair to to force me to have one that I don't want. Yeah. And uh, this is remarkable because it, it, it matches so well what Andrew Fleischman told us when he was a guest on the show about how Georgia will impose this trial penalty on you and all these detriments if you insist on this speedy trial. Uh, remember that uh, Fonnie Willis had previously filed a somewhat whiny motion to the judge saying, what do you mean you're going to try Ken Chesbrough on his own? He, you haven't done the right analysis to do that. We ask you to <laughs> clarify what you mean, judge, <laughs> which is how a DA says you're wrong, do what I want instead. And then they file this whiny thing, which is basically, well, we don't want these people to have a speedy trial. So please tell them about all these terrible trial penalties that people have to put up with <laughs> and the diminution of their rights if they insist on a speedy trial. Based on that, the judge responded somewhat sternly saying, actually, I run my own docket. I have my own deadlines that I will impose. Thank you. And was not impressed. The, the, the judge is showing some amount of spine uh, against the DA here, which is unusual and, and good. The other thing, of course, Josh, that's going on is that Ken Chesbrough and Sidney Powell don't want to be tried together. Yeah, so they they both want a speedy trial. They both want a separate speedy trial. And, you know, partly it's that the the things they're accused of doing are not even that closely interrelated. A lot of what Sidney Powell was up to had to do with this breach of voting machines down in Coffee County. Uh, Ken Chesbrough is supposed to have been closely involved in, in the elector scheme. Um, and then also, Sidney Powell is a is a crazy and unappealing person. Right. In general, you, you want to be separated from a, a really unpleasant co-defendant. For what, because it looks bad in front of the jury or because it's going to be complicated to try the case while they're sitting there? I assume it's also less expensive to do a case one-on-one because it's shorter. It is. You don't want to be associated with someone crazy. Uh, I think we should call this trial cheese and crackers. Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, so they both move. But generally, prosecutors have fairly broad discretion to connect different defendants together in a case. And so... You know, Josh, you were asking, well, why if, if these two didn't do anything that that's part of the same subpart of the conspiracy, why could you try them together? But the standard under Georgia law for severing them is different. The questions are uh, whether it creates confusion about the law and the evidence, 
whether it creates a danger that uh, evidence is admissible against one and not the other that the jury's going to think about despite instructions, and whether they have antagonistic defenses. In other words, they're pointing the finger at each other. And the judge found, well, you know, you guys don't meet any of those categories. It's kind of weird that you're together, but that doesn't make it severable. Yeah. In, in fact, having lots of unrelated conduct probably makes it easier to meet those tests, right? Somewhat. But but it, the question is, is evidence going to come in that's harmful to the other defendants? Right. And so mm-hmm. the thought is here, you're going to be talking about two completely separate schemes. Uh, so you would say two different uh, spokes on the wheel is, is the way you use in conspiracy right. talk. But it's not necessarily prejudicial to each other. So the judge seems inclined for now to keep them together. And so is that really going to go to trial next month? My theory is that to some extent, Chesbro and Powell are playing chicken here. and uh, Playing chicken with the DA. Exactly. And that at some point uh, they will back off uh, and decide to accept a later date. That's a dangerous game. Um, you might do it because you think the DA won't be ready. Um, but uh, DAs, their competitive advantage compared to federal prosecutors is they're sort of always ready. They're always ready to sort of, sort of you know, roll out of bed and wander into court with a file they haven't looked at before <laughs> and, and throw a case on. Uh, it, that's, that's what they do all day. They don't do a lot of preparation and they're used to sort of doing it on the fly. So it's a big risk to sort of assume that they're not going to be ready like that. They were probably ready when they indicted. Um, and they don't stand on a lot of ceremony, as opposed to, you know, the, the feds who want to practice everything 10 times and, you know, be perfectly prepared and, and that type of thing. But isn't the other possible version of the game of chicken they're playing that they might hope, especially Chesabro might hope that the DA will simply drop some or all of the charges that have been brought here? Because the DA is clearly upset about these games with the calendar. And the DA is probably going to lose on that motion from Donald Trump. You're, I, I think you expect Donald Trump will be granted the right to a separate later trial on a more reasonable schedule. Oh, I think almost definitely. And so if you put Ken and, and Sydney on trial right away, you have to preview a lot of the evidence that you're going to use later in the Trump trial, which the DA might not want to do. And depending on how important she views these two as having been in the scheme and how important a priority she thinks it is to prosecute them, one thing that she could do to clean up this mess is to dismiss some of the charges against them. She could. And it's not just that the other defendants will get a preview of the testimony. It's that there will be a free cross-examination of all our witnesses. The witnesses will all get locked in to one version of events. You know, as a lawyer, generally, you don't want your witnesses testifying multiple times because every time little discrepancies creep in, they get locked into a particular story that they tell a little differently the next time and so on and so forth. So you don't want those witnesses testifying multiple times. And, and so, yeah, but the DA, though, I don't think she's just going to cut people loose to preserve that. I think that's unlikely. She could surprise me, but I think uh, I, I think that it's going to be difficult for her, the DA's pride and their approach to things uh, just to dismiss anyone. I do think we're sort of seeing, though, when, when Jack Smith's indictment for the, for the post-election activities came down, one of the questions had been, why aren't the unindicted co-conspirators indicted? Will they be indicted soon? There was a lot of serious conduct by serious misconduct by people other than Donald Trump there. I, th- I think we're sort of seeing an illustration of 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 all of the things that can complicate your your sort of core prosecution when you try to prosecute all these other people at the same time. Yeah, I, I think Jack Smith sees that prosecuting Trump is the main event 
the most important thing in terms of historically, in terms of deterrence and, and all of that, and that going after the other people now just complicates it. One area that I think is a, a problem that is going to be less problematic for Fonnie Willis has to do with one of these defendants who was a fake elector who has sought to remove his case to federal court on the grounds that he was a federal official because he was a, a purported elector or because he was acting at the direction in some indirect manner, Donald Trump. Um, and so basically, she's in federal court saying he's not a federal official. The removal is for federal officials, that they can have a right to be tried in federal court in certain circumstances. Just because you pretend to be an elector uh, and just because you did something in coordination with a presidential campaign that had lost an election, right. that doesn't make you a federal official. I, I think she has the stronger argument there, too, that, you know, you can't if, if you dress up uh, like an FBI agent uh, and commit crimes, that doesn't mean you get to remove the federal court on the grounds that you're an FBI agent. Uh, so I would be surprised if that particular fake elector successfully removes the federal court on this. There's been some other Georgia Rico action. Another case with 61 defendants that's, you know, sort of makes 19 look like small time in this case. This is a, a case brought by the uh, Republican Attorney General of Georgia, and it has to do with some protests over efforts to build a police training facility in the Atlanta area. And there has been protesting around that, which has been disruptive and in certain cases has involved illegal acts, you know, the, the brandishing of weapons and the throwing of Molotov cocktails and that sort of thing. But they didn't just charge people with those individual illegal acts. They charged 61 people in a broad sweeping conspiracy uh, to protest in a way that involved these various crimes. Yes, this is basically the the dream that you've been hearing from the GOP for a few years now is kind of like, well, why can't we just charge Black Lives Matter with RICO? Why can't we charge Antifa with RICO? This is kind of like an example of what something like that would look like. They're mad at this particular protest movement. The protest movement has included some people who have committed distinct crimes, arson, vandalism, assault, and so on. But they're treating it as a whole, and they're sort of treating the entire protest movement as inherently illegitimate and uh, as if everyone involved is deliberately involved in the criminal aspects. So uh, the indictment, which is extremely long, uh, even for a 61-person uh, case, you know, has a deep dive into, oh, you know, well, this is what anarchy is and this is what mutual support is and sort of this dry governmental description of all these elements of protest culture. And then basically suggesting that everything done by this broader movement is meant to promote and advance these illegal acts. So you have things like, uh, you know, people getting reimbursed for expenses relating to, you know, having supplies and food at protests charged with money laundering uh, and, and the reimbursements treated as overt acts. Um, there was a, a shooting where where uh, an officer shot someone, and it's open to dispute whether or not uh, the officer was was defending himself, or whether there was a friendly fire incident, or what it was. But some people have been calling him a murderer, and so they have charged people on the theory that distributing flyers identifying the officer and calling him a murderer are overt acts in furtherance of this conspiracy. So it's kind of a somewhat chilling example of how 
Georgia's tendency to use RICO extremely aggressively. Um, their special version of RICO could be used for political purposes because this is basically, you know, criminalizing and treating as mob action an entire protest movement. I saw a guest on MSNBC suggesting that the Republican attorney general in Georgia was doing this in part to discredit the Fulton County RICO prosecution of Donald Trump and his associates, basically, that this was to make it look like, you know, RICO is simply a political tool. I, I don't really think that's the way anyone thinks. Uh, first of all, they've been going very aggressively and looking for ways to charge these protesters for a long time. And there have been rumblings of them finding a way to go after them well before Trump was indicted on RICO. Second of all, you know how well we all compartmentalize in looking at the American criminal justice system. So, you know, you have progressives who normally would be appalled by how the system works, cheering it when it's Trump who's getting charged with RICO. So I, I don't really know that that would possibly change the way people think about anything. We're, we're able to be appalled by the system and then cheer when it goes after someone we don't like. We do that all the time. And some of the criticisms that I've seen of this indictment really echo criticisms that I've seen of the Trump indictment, particularly this focus on the idea that many of the overt acts cited in both of these indictments are not only not illegal, um, in some cases, they're constitutionally protected First Amendment activity. And that's, you know, the the certain, you know, statements that were made to in various fora uh, are overt acts in furtherance of the conspiracy that is charged in the Donald Trump case. And so, I mean, as you know, you're describing this, you know, being sort of, you know, a vast overreach in terms of, you know, that you had some underlying crimes here, but then RICO causes you to reach into all these places that you shouldn't reach into. Is that also a fair way to characterize the Trump prosecution? Yes, but you have to kind of explain what that means. And the response is the same, whether it's the Trump prosecution or this prosecution. So with a RICO conspiracy, like with any conspiracy, the crime is the agreement. The crime is entering into an agreement to commit various crimes, okay? Overt acts are not themselves crimes. They are simply indications. Uh, Here's some things that were done as steps towards moving forward this criminal agreement. And ironically, the concept of having overt acts started out as a way to protect from government overreach. So the idea was we don't want to criminalize a bunch of idiots sitting around drunk coming up with an idea and then, you know, never doing anything about it uh, or, you know, regretting it the next morning in the, in the light of day. We only want to go after conspiracies when someone has started to take steps to put a criminal plan uh, into fruition. And so that was the idea. Now, overt acts are used much more by prosecutors as a way to tell the story, to illustrate things, and to sort of tie each defendant into the case somehow narratively. And the result of that is you see a lot of stuff get listed that seems to be you know, not a crime and, in fact, protected. And it can be. That, that does not – it's not illegal to charge someone and, and name an overt act that is – itself legal and even protected. Because again, it's the agreement and and the act that you're talking about is only evidence that the agreement has moved forward. And so I guess the, then the key distinction between these two cases, am I right to characterize it this way, that if you had charged the Trump case in a less creative way, 
that focused more on the individual criminal acts uh, that were conducted there. And, you know, I guess you'd, you'd, you'd still have some conspiracy charges, presumably. They just wouldn't be RICO charges. You would still reach the core bad acts there that the government is concerned about, which is to say the effort to steal the election. And you still would have been able to indict Donald Trump for serious crimes along with some of his close associates. Whereas if you took a more straightforward approach on this this protest investigation. There are real crimes that, that you could indict there, but you probably wouldn't at all reach some of the people who are political opponents of the elected officials who they would like to reach. Right, because the, the, the narrative of the Trump case is that this entire effort by Trump and his team was illegitimate, right, uh, from the start. And and that's kind of what distinguishes the Georgia Rico case from Jack Smith's federal January 6th case up in D.C. That case sort of acknowledges there were legitimate parts of this, including challenging things in court. That's legal, but here's what's not legal. Georgia Trump case is much more, this whole thing is an illegal effort, illegitimate from the start. In the same way, this protest case really treats the entire protest movement not as a movement that included some people committing crimes, but as a movement dedicated to committing crimes from the start. So uh, arguing that the point was to commit crimes in order to defeat this planned law enforcement institution being built. Let's talk about the E. Jean Carroll case or, or E. Jean Carroll 1 as it were, E. Jean Carroll too was the case that actually went to trial. First, you know, first she had sued over defamation, saying that the president had defamed her when he accused her of lying about having uh, raped her, um, and that had all these issues about that Donald Trump made those statements while he was the sitting president, and there were questions about what a sitting president uh, could be liable for. Trump then went on to make additional statements after he left office, and the state of New York changed the law in a way that allowed E. Jean Carroll to bring a civil claim against him directly for for sexual assault, and so those matters went forward to trial. She won a judgment, uh, quite the millions of dollars in a judgment against Donald Trump. But then Carol won the case that involved the statements while he was president. That case is still kicking around and it's moving toward actually going to trial that Donald Trump actually can be tried, can be held liable for the statements that he made while he was president in addition to the ones he made afterward. And so then there was a question before Judge Lewis Kaplan about do they even need a trial on the facts or the, because the statements that he made in office are substantially similar to the ones he made after office for which he was held liable, can the court just hold, well, you know, you were liable there, so you're liable also here, and we can move straight forward to figuring out exactly how damaging your statements were and what sort of money damages there should be. And Judge Kaplan said yes, that they're that they're going to go ahead and basically declare him having to have been defeated without trying him on the facts again. Right. So there were, there were dueling motions here. There was a summary judgment motion by Eugene Carroll saying, I shouldn't have to prove liability again because I've already proved it. And there was a motion by Trump saying that anything she gets in this case should be discounted by what she already got in the Carroll 2 case. And what the judge said is he, he's applied the doctrine of what's called issue preclusion. That's sort of the notion that when something has already been proved in another case, you don't have to reprove it. It can be binding on a party who was part of that case. And so here the judge found, well, the key issue is – was he lying when he said very similar statements? The statements were to the effect of, she's lying, I did not sexually assault her. Uh, and that question has already been resolved by a different jury, that he was lying, that he did sexually assault her, and that therefore this was defamation. So the judge said, yes, uh, because of what the jury found in, in Carol too, 
that precludes Trump from contesting it here in Carol One. The statements she's suing over here are substantially the same. So the finding that the, the other statement was defamation is binding here. And all that's left is a determination of damages. And by the way, no, you don't get an automatic credit for the, the award in Carol Two. She gets to prove what separate damages she might have here. So when you say he doesn't get an automatic credit, that's still going to be a major issue for Eugene Carroll in this case, right? Is showing that the statements that he made as president caused additional damage to her reputation above and beyond the damage that came from the later statements? Yeah, it's going to be her burden to trace damages arising from this particular statement. And the jury's going to be able to decide that and decide what part of it came from this particular statement. But there's also the issue of punitive damages. And so, uh, you know, she's definitely looking at the prospect of another significant award here, in part because his, his behavior, you know, juries find to be so atrocious. Finally, this week, let's talk about Elon Musk and the Anti-Defamation League, he's threatening to sue the Anti-Defamation League for defamation. Uh, and so the Anti-Defamation League, of course, is a, is a very long-standing organization that has fought in opposition to anti-Semitism in the United States. And it is among the organizations that have said that there's been a significant increase in hate speech activity on Twitter since Elon Musk purchased Twitter and, and took over management of it. And when they make that claim, they make it based on, you know, certain certain quantitative measures about, you know, here's the frequency with which this phrase or that phrase, et cetera, is used on Twitter. And ADL is one of, but far from the only organization that has been discouraging advertisers from advertising on Twitter while it has the policies that have created this, this environment that they are identifying. And Elon Musk basically says, this has caused us to lose lots of business. Our advertising is down 60%. Uh, and, you know, I'm thinking seriously about suing them for defamation over this. And so you know, normally we don't cover threats of lawsuits our general view is, you know, like anyone can threaten a lawsuit, you know, go to court and, th and then we'll talk about it. But because this has gotten so much attention, I, d I just want to, to give people a sense of, you know, is there any sort of plausible claim that Elon could assert here? Because he has he has brought a lawsuit against n another organization that does similar stuff, although not notably not a defamation lawsuit. Right. He, he has recently sued an organization that fights hate speech online called the Center for Combating Digital Hate. But he framed that one as basically illegally accessing data and scraping data in order to put together reports and inducing people to give them access to data, things like that, uh, very deliberately avoiding defamation. So here, it is a, a threat. I'm not sure if it's real or not, but it would be a very difficult case to win, Josh. And it's one where it's likely the ADL, which has very good lawyers, would have a high chance of getting it knocked out early. So traditionally, it's very difficult to sue people for saying that you're a bigot, for saying that you're racist or anti-Semitic, because those terms are so often bound up in opinion, uh, in interpretation of events, in interpretation of your words, and things like that. So Elon Musk would have to really be able to identify specific things the ADL said that were factually false, not just arguable interpretations of events. So if he could say that, uh, you know, if he could show they were going around talking to advertisers and and making up stuff completely out of whole cloth, that could be a plausible case. But if it's just a matter of, look, these are the things we see, we view that as a rise in anti-Semitism, we view that as a rise in hate, 
we think that's a problem and we think that uh, Elon Musk, by tolerating it, is showing anti-Semitism, then that's all protected opinion. It's not a valid basis for a defamation claim. And what's fascinating is how the way this arises and the way he's carrying it out plays into all the ADL's arguments uh, that he's promoting mm-hmm. anti-Semitism. So this started this wave of things because uh, Linda Yaccarino, the, the CEO and the woman who basically took a rowboat out to the Titanic to take over as cruise director, um, <laughs> had a meeting with the ADL and tweeted something that, you know, we can come to agreement, we can talk about protecting from hate, and all the bigots on Twitter flipped out and started a hashtag, ban the ADL, uh, because the ADL is very unpopular with uh, racists and bigots. And uh, Trump basically, excuse me, there's a revealing uh, slip, Elon Musk basically leaned into this. He retweeted people who were talking about ban the ADL. He kind of agreed with some bigots saying things. And this turned into him, you know, going off on these riffs about suing them. And the people celebrating about this, some of them are like overt Nazis. So and his his narrative that even though the ADL was part of a coalition of dozens of groups that were expressing concern about hate, saying that it's the ADL that is costing us all this money is a classic, you know, the Jews are behind everything. They run everything. There's this conspiracy by the Jews, classic anti-Semitic trope. So it's going to be a really rough case, I think, for him to show that they are saying something that is not a protected opinion. And all of the surrounding circumstances are basically going to demonstrate to any court why that opinion is perfectly plausible. Finally, this week, let's talk about Hunter Biden. His plea deal has fallen apart, and there was a filing from federal prosecutors suggesting that they would bring charges in the gun case against him by the end of this month. This is the issue that um, Hunter Biden bought a handgun in 2018, and prosecutors say he lied on a form about whether he was an unlawful user of drugs at the time. And there's been a lot of question about whether this law is even constitutional. Uh, There's, you know, in fact, we had an appellate court that ruled for at least part of the country that this constitutional requirement on on the right to bear arms violates the Second Amendment. And so... I think a lot of people were a little bit surprised that prosecutors made this filing suggesting that they were going to move forward on what was probably the weakest part of any attempt to prosecute Hunter Biden criminally. This is not related to the to the tax issues that uh, that seem like the really bigger problem for Hunter Biden. When you look at this filing, does this actually mean they're going to file charges by the end of the month or is this some sort of procedural thing? Well, this was triggered because they did file those informations, uh, those accusations on both the taxes and the gun that were going to be resolved under this plea structure where the gun information was going to be diverted, a diversion deal, and there was going to be a plea to the tax ones, and and that fell apart. So now those are sitting there, and they have to do something about it. And part of it is that uh, normally you have to move forward the case. And the judge asked them to say, hey, what's going on? Are you complying with the relevant laws like the Speedy Trial Act? And this filing was the result. So no, I don't know that it absolutely means that, as it says on its face, they're definitely going to charge him with a gun crime the way it suggests, because it could just be sort of a placeholder uh, until they get to what they're really going to do, which is, you know, file some sort of tax case wherever they decide it's appropriate to file that. Uh, I would be a little surprised if they decided to pursue the gun case simply because, as you said, 
you know, the Fifth Circuit has just decided that this law about not uh, possessing a gun while an addict uh, is unconstitutional. It's rarely prosecuted. It's only usually prosecuted in unusual circumstances where it's combined with something else, where it's really a way to try to get to something else. So um, that would be unusual. And plus, there's the whole complication of uh, how Hunter Biden's lawyers are going to say that actually there was a binding deal as to this gun count. And we had a signed diversion agreement and that should control. So it would surprise me a little bit if they went that way. I, I think they'd just be buying into a lot of trouble uh, instead of just going on the tax counts. But but we'll see. Well, why don't we leave it there for this week? Ken, thank you for speaking with me as always. Thank you, Josh. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosher. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. See you next time. <laughs>